Well, good morning, everyone. Thank you very much, Trevor. If you have a Bible with you, could I invite you to turn to 1 John chapter 1. It's page 1,225 in the Bibles. In the pews, we have a lot to get through this morning. As I said last week, as we approach uh, some of this stuff, we kind of need to take a deep breath. So please uh, do that. We have called this new series, Walk This Way. And last Sunday, we, we started reading this relatively short uh, letter or epistle together. And in the space of the first four verses, the preface or the, the opening paragraph, we discovered that the writer, who is probably the now quite elderly apostle uh, John, he launches straight in to talking about Jesus, who is the primary focus of all that he writes. And John is, is quick, very quick, to tell his readers that Jesus has been around from the very, very beginning. He's the word of life. He is the eternal life. In other words, Jesus is the message and he is the source of life as it's meant to be. And for a specific period of time, says John, he appeared. He appeared in the flesh and he lived with and he lived among. And John makes it clear that along with others, he heard him with his own ears, seen him with his own eyes, touched him with his own hands. And John is bursting to tell people and to proclaim that what he listened to and what he observed and what he handled. He wants to tell people about this Jesus so that those who are reading his letter and who would ever read his letter, which includes us this morning, so that they could enjoy fellowship or canonia with the Father, with the Son and with John. That despite the fact that most of his readers, and again including us, have never heard Jesus, never seen Jesus, never touched Jesus, we can still be part of this dynamic, interconnected, shared community. And John is writing all of this, he says, to make his and our joy complete. In other words, this changes everything. Now, last Sunday morning, it took me half an hour to say that. It only took me 90 seconds this morning. So that would have saved a lot of time if I'd just done it like that last week. Uh, anyway, this morning we pick up John's letter at verse 5 of the first chapter. So could I invite you to stand with me for the public reading of God's life-altering words. 1 John chapter 1, starting at verse 5, page 1225. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie, and we do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his Son, purifies or cleanses us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the Righteous One. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, 
but also for the sins of the whole world. Have a seat. How you live your Christian life matters. Christianity is not just a belief system. It's a, a lifestyle. The thoughts we entertain, the attitudes we hold, the words we speak, the actions we perform 24-7, they all communicate. They all say something. They all reflect something about where each of us is at in our relationship to God. Because true Christianity results in changed lives. And in this particular section of of John's letter, he, he gets pretty up close and personal. And he starts challenging people about this tension that sometimes exists between what people claim to believe and yet how they live. And he uses some rather provocative language to confront the inconsistencies that sometimes occur. He uses phrases like, you lie. And you don't live out the truth. Or you deceive yourselves and the truth is not in you. Or you make God out to be a liar and his word is not in you. Those are, those are strong things to say to anybody. It's explosive material. It's potentially offensive. But clearly it's important. It seems that certain people were making some rather bold claims regarding the Christian faith claims that John said, you know something, I'm going to have to challenge these. I'm going to have to confront these. And John was not afraid to take people on. He was not afraid to speak into the confusion. But before John starts speaking to people or about people, he starts where it has to start, where we always must start. And that is with God. Because you see, everything everything begins with a better and fuller understanding and appreciation of who God is. And it's whenever you discover that, you then can begin to understand who you are in relation to God. And so right from the start of this section, look at it in verse 5, John shares something that he's obviously heard from Jesus. That's the implication of the opening phrase of verse 5. This is something we heard from him, and now I'm sharing it with you. And what is that something we heard from him, from Jesus? This. God is light. Now, later on in this little letter, John's going to say, God is love. But for now, his point is this. God is light. And in him, there is no darkness at all. Not a hint of it. Not an iota. God is pure. He's perfect. Utterly flawless. Absolutely holy. Other than. Different to. God is light. And with that framework in place, with that reality now firmly established, he then turns to us. And how we must or therefore must live because the fact and the truth is that God is light doesn't just 
include a definition of God's character. But this phrase has massive implications to the lives of those who claim to be Christians. Because as we'll discover in the moment, if God is light, those who claim to be in relationship with him must walk in the light. Now the title for this series is Walk This Way, which is inspired by a verse that we'll come to in a couple of weeks about the call to walk as Jesus walked. But here is one crucial dimension of what this means. You want to know how to walk as Jesus walked? Well, what you've got to learn to do is walk in the light. But as John turns his attention from God to us, he then directly addresses three false ideas that were doing the rounds. They were doing the rounds in his day, and there are actually three false ideas that still need to be addressed. Now let me make this as accessible or as memorable as possible. Three times in those verses, don't know if you noticed it, but three times you come across this phrase, if we claim. If we claim. If we claim. But alongside those three if we claims, there are three but ifs. The first if we claim occurs in verse 6. If we claim to have fellowship with him, that is the God who is light. So if you claim to have fellowship with God who is light and yet you walk in darkness, well listen, you lie. And the, the truth is not in you. And here, John speaks into the lives of those people who were living a blatantly double life. People who claim to be in relationship with God. People who were vocal about the fact they were Christians. And yet they made consistent and ongoing choices to sin. And as far as John is concerned, it's nonsense. Just nonsense. You cannot claim to have fellowship with God and then willfully, deliberately live in a way that dishonors God. It's not the way it works. It can't work like this. Now we're not talking about people who mess up. We're not talking about anybody who gets it wrong or who commits sin from time to time. As John goes on to state and he clarifies this, we're all sinners. Not one of us is perfect. We're all imperfect. We all make mistakes. But what he's targeting, or rather who he's targeting, are those people, and look at verse 6, are those people who walk in darkness. This is about, now please hear this. This is about an ongoing present tense lifestyle. This is about people whose actions consistently contradict and therefore speak far louder than their words. This is about people whose actions speak far more clearly or eloquently than their pious claims. These are people, John is speaking about, who are living in religious darkness, which is an interesting concept. Remember, God is light, he said. And therefore, for this God who is light, to be in an intimate relationship and in fellowship with a person who's determined to sin time and time again, well, that would just be a denial of God's character. 
If someone is choosing to walk in darkness, if that's the path they have decided I'm going to stroll, I'm going to tread, this is the path I'm going to stick to, then they simply cannot be living in close relationship with God. Why? Because God is repelled by darkness. And as you can imagine, and it's still, this is kind of potentially offensive material. God cannot be, says John, in communion with a person who is wantingly disobedient. And John doesn't mince his words regarding that type of person. He explicitly says, listen, they're just living a spiritual lie. We lie and do not live out the truth. Although as I understand it, and a more accurate translation of that would be, we lie and we do not do the truth. We do not do the truth. You see, the Bible is consistent in what it teaches about discipleship regarding the importance of not just hearing it, of not just saying what you believe, of not just acknowledging it, of not even just believing it. It's not enough. The Bible's consistent right through. You've got to do it. You've got to practice what you preach. You've got to be obedient. You've got to follow. You've got to walk as Jesus walked. Back to something I said a moment ago, Christianity is not just a belief system, it's a lifestyle. It's about a lifestyle that is honestly undergoing the process of transformation, of becoming more like Jesus. And if there's no willingness to change, then serious questions need to be asked. Now, as I was preparing for this, I realized that in some senses I could just keep talking in very general terms and not get specific about the kind of present tense walking in darkness lifestyles I'm referring or alluding to but you know what I decided I don't want to go there because by doing that I risk isolating And I risk highlighting certain ones over and above others. Plus, John doesn't get specific. Although, given what we know about his context, it might be possible to suggest who he had on his radar. But let me put it like this. If a person claims to be a Christian and is involved in behavior or lifestyle that they know to be contrary to biblical teaching, to God's heart, to God's ways, and then they pretend or try to pretend that it doesn't really matter. Then, to use John's phrase, they're living a lie. And the truth just is not in it. And I kind of hope and pray that no one here, self included, ever falls into that category. Strong words. Time for the first but if. There's six of these to get through. First but if. Look at verse 7. But if we claim, but if, sorry, we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another in the blood of Jesus. His son purifies us from all sin. Total contrast. This is about a radically different present tense lifestyle. This is about habitually walking along a radically alternative path. 
This is about walking, no, not in darkness, but in the light. This is about walking in God in whom we must live, breathe, and have our being. But look at what it actually means, or what it involves, or what walking in this light leads to. It leads to two things, genuine fellowship, in other words, true community. That's what this leads to. Not only true community, but also to forgiveness at the foot of the cross where Christ shed his blood. A subject and a truth that John will come back to in a matter of verses, and hopefully I will get there as well. And the question is this, where, are, where am I walking this morning? Because one path leaves me lost and deceived, and the other path leaves me in community and forgiven. Second, if we claim. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Now, this second, if we claim, and the third one, which is in verse 10, they do appear to be very, very similar. And yet, a number of Bible commentators, commentators separate them and treat them slightly differently, and I want to do that this morning. The second, this second, if we claim, relates to those people. Now, please hear again me carefully what I'm saying. It relates to those people who reckon, do you know something? Sin is no longer a problem in my life. It doesn't need to be taken that seriously anymore. Now, for those of you who were here during our recent Sunday evening series on the seven deadly sins, you will probably know or have heard what I'm about to say. If I was to stand up here this morning and say this, listen everyone, really pleased to share that sin is no longer an issue in my life. I am done with it. I'm over it. Then, and most of you, and rightly so too, would want to challenge me. You'd want to question my integrity. You'd think, He has finally lost it. Okay, it's true that as a Christian, I am no longer a slave to sin. I absolutely believe that. Every single Christian in this church this morning is no longer a slave to sin. But sin and its seductive quality has not completely disappeared from my life. And from influencing my life. And I know all too well that the sinful nature has not been totally eradicated. It's not fully extinguished. I can still follow the desires of the sinful nature. New Testament is explicit about this. Yes, again, we have the Holy Spirit who somehow dwells within and we are urged to keep in step with him to follow his lead but as Paul says these two forces are in conflict they're constantly fighting each other sinful nature the spirit of God within me my internal life is a battleground it's a theatre of conflict And therefore sin still seduces me, still entices. And specific sins still need to be addressed. Sins like pride 
and envy and lust and greed and gluttony and anger and sloth to name but seven. Only seven. It's not an exhaustive list. I'm not over-prayed completely. I'm not done with lust. And so as a child of God and as a Christian disciple, Paul writes these famous words, and I'm so glad he did. For I want to do what is right, but I don't do it. Instead, I do what I hate. And I want to do what is good, but I don't do it. I don't want to do what is wrong, but I keep doing it anyway. Or in the words of a Roman poet, I see the right and approve it too, condemn the wrong, and yet the wrong pursue. See, Paul understood the battle, as did this poet. And unless we grasp this, we will never fully understand what living the Christian life involves on a day-to-day basis. You see, sin still easily entangles the life of a Christian, according to the writer of Hebrews. That's why he says, listen, you need to get rid of this. This stuff still entangles you. And so for any Christian to say or to claim, listen, sin's no longer a problem, it's no longer an issue, again, I want to suggest that John would say, nonsense. Or to quote John again, the truth's not in you. And so we need to hear and pay attention to the next but if. And here it is. But if. And John then injects some very well known, very familiar, maybe over familiar words. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Now just in case some of you are sitting with a version of the Bible that doesn't have but if, just has if. If you have a new living translation, it has but if. And I needed three but ifs to counter the three if we claims, okay? So yes for the NLT. (laughs) But it's a gem of a verse, this, isn't it? Because it reminds us of the importance of and the gift of confession. And Christians who recognize that sin still seduces and still entangles, Christians who recognize that, they're the ones who value the necessity of confessions. Of confession. 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 Christians who take sin seriously, to quote an old phrase, they keep short accounts with God. They know they've messed up. They know they've made some poor choices. They know they've given into temptation in this past week, maybe even in this past 24 hours. I know I have. And rather than carry on regardless, they, for example, are willing to echo the words of this person who wrote Psalm 32. Then I acknowledged my sin to you. I did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. We should never think that sin is no longer a problem. Or no longer matters. And you see, the moment that we discover that it's been a while since we honestly and intentionally confessed our sin before God, if it has been a while, then I want to suggest that we are sending out a signal that sin is no longer really a problem to us. And so I have to look at my own life and I have to say, when was the last time I knelt before God in honest to God confession and named specific sins? Or have I reached the place where actually 
although I say a lot of good stuff, what I communicate is that sin no longer really matters. Confession is such an essential holy habit. And whenever we did a series three years ago this month on the holy habits, I remember sharing this helpful quote from an interesting source. For a good confession, there are three things necessary. One, an examination of conscience. Two, sorrow. Three, a determination to avoid sin. And let me encourage those of us who are Christians to take some time today, or certainly this week, sit down with God, before God, allow him to search our hearts, which the psalmist encourages us to pray. God, search my heart. Know if there's any offensive way. Sit down before God, allow him to search our hearts, confess what we in God discover, and then recommit ourselves to walking in the light. Because when we do that, we find forgiveness, not because any of us deserve to be forgiven, but why? Because God is faithful and just. It's all about God. May we never take sin lightly or trivialize it, despite the cultural pressure, but recognize that it always needs to be confessed. The final, if we claim, still okay, still with me? Yeah. Final, if we claim, is in verse 10. I'm not going to say too much about this one because I sense that very few of us here this morning would ever make this claim. Maybe we would. If we claim we have not sinned, we make God out to be a liar and the truth is not in us. Can anybody honestly claim to have never sinned? This is slightly different than this one. Claim to have never sinned. Well, it would seem that in John's world, there were some who did claim this. And when I was thinking about it, we kind of live in a context that increasingly refuses to acknowledge or even use the word sin anymore. It's not a popular word, concept, idea. It's disappearing from our vocabulary. So maybe there are lots of people today who claim to have never sinned. Well, according to John, anyone who claims to have never sinned is to call God a barefaced liar. And it's just to trash and malign his word. And we all have that choice. Now at this point, you kind of expect the last but if. However, John's pastoral heart gets in the way. And it gets uncovered a little bit further at this moment. And so he writes, first verse, chapter 2, he writes, My dear children. You see, he really cares about all the Christians who are under his influence. He cares about every single one of us who's reading his letter. And in the next line, before he gets to the but if, in the next line he unveils his second explicit reason for writing this letter. Do you remember last week, verse 4 of chapter 1? He said, I write this in order to make our joy complete. Well, here's the second explicit reason for writing this letter. I write this to you so that you will not sin. That's an interesting idea. And what it means is, I write this to you because this should be your goal. This should honestly be your heart's desire. Because John has been writing and will say that no Christian can be totally free of sin in this life. Can't. But the reason he's putting pen to paper, the reason for speaking into their lives, is to encourage them to retain this as their ongoing and determined intention. That's my goal. 
to not sin. And it's at this point you then come to the butter. And here's a verse and a half that you could spend the rest of today speaking about. Do you know last week I mentioned that within this letter we enter into the realms of mystery and deep theology and dangerous doctrine will prepare to let your mind expand if anybody does sin. I love that. I write this to you so that you won't sin, but if anybody does sin. That's all of us. We have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous one, he is the atoning sacrifice for sins. And not only for ours, not only for ours, but for the sins of the whole world. And I don't have time to do this justice. But just stick with me for the last couple of minutes. In Jesus, who remember is the ultimate focus of this letter. In Jesus, we have an advocate. We have a defense lawyer, if you like, who speaks up on our behalf to the Father. Why do we need that? Well, because of our sin, God holds us accountable. And God cannot excuse it. Why can God not excuse it? Because God is light can't overlook, he can't turn a blind eye to darkness. It just runs right through us. And so we stand before him guilty as charged, condemned. Now I know this isn't popular again, teaching. But Jesus, our advocate, is also the righteous one. In other words, the sinless one, the perfect one. And therefore, he is able to speak up on our behalf. But he is the righteous one, the perfect one, the sinless one. And therefore, what John says is he is the one that has the right to speak up on our behalf. He is the one that has the right to defend those who do sin. And the reason that his defense is effective is why? For this reason, he is the atoning sacrifice. In other words, he is the solution to our problem of sin. Yes, our sin is inexcusable. Darkness runs right through us. But what Jesus does as our defense lawyer, as our advocate is, he refers his father to his own sacrificial death on the cross where he paid the penalty, where he served the sentence for all the sin and wrongdoing of the whole world. Please hear that. For the sin and the wrongdoing of the whole world. Which means that forgiveness and salvation and eternal life and relationship and fellowship with a holy God who is light is now possible. Now that's a kind of like condensed, inadequate, explanation of that verse and I haven't done it justice and I can't give you a full explanation of some incredibly technical words and ideas and terms but please take that verse away with you today and just breathe it in 
Just breathe it in. And so, as we walk out of here this morning, may we continually consider what we and others claim. And may we walk in the light, confess our sin, and thank and worship Jesus, who is our advocate, the righteous one, our atoning sacrifice.